Hello, my name is Andrew. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 35, 1 through 5. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. The Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. For your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sloan. The New Testament reading found in 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And you would, and what, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited all us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, for you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in desperate. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. Hi, my name is Steve. Afterward, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. Jesus said to him, follow me. Levi got up, left everything behind, and followed him. Then Levi threw a great banquet for Jesus and his home. A large number of tax collectors and others sat down to eat with them. The Pharisees and their legal experts grumbled against his disciples. They said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners to change their hearts and lives. The Gospel of the Lord. Maybe seated. That was Luke five twenty-seven through 32. I forgot to mention that. Many of you know that my parents have moved uh, from Malaysia to the U.S. and they're living with us and it's been one of the great joys uh, in our lives for Holly and I and for our children. And I, I just want to say, many of you have been um, very gracious in, in uh, welcoming them and in uh, reaching out to them, having them over for meals. And I just want to thank you for that, not only because as a son it makes me uh, really pleased to see that happening, but also because whenever they come home from having dinner with someone, they bring these leftover desserts and stuff. So we got a really nice cake the other night. So just keep that coming, if you would. But some years ago, they, when they were pastoring their church in Malaysia, they were in kind of a developing township, and the church was near um, a college. 
And, and um, the college would, would attract a lot of students from other parts of Asia. For example, there was, a, there was a period of time there where a bunch of students from mainland China were coming to this college because they taught in English and many of these families wanted to send their children to a school where they could practice learning in English and then perhaps move on and go to other schools, maybe in Australia or in the UK, and get a, a really great education. Well, my mom was teaching English classes, sort of remedial English classes at this college, and so many of these students, uh, because they needed a pre, you know, uh, some pre-work in English before they could go on and take their courses in English, uh, they were in the, this class with my mom. And through her, they began to be introduced to the church, and they began to meet other families in the church. And one day, during a conversation over food, because all great conversations take place over food, uh, someone said, so what do you think about God, and what do you think about um, Christianity? And it didn't take long before several of the students said, uh, rather sheepishly, well, (laughs) to us, Christianity is the peasant's religion. It's sort of the religion of the poor person. And part of the reason they were saying that is because in mainland China, those that were poor could easily find help from Christians. And so the impression was, well, I guess if you need that sort of thing, then there's always Christians. But these people, if you know a little bit about the situation in China, you'll know that for a lot of families, by Chinese law, you can only have one child. And so these students were the only child in their home and were, in, in a sense, children of privilege. They were the ones that their parents had sort of invested everything in and said, you're going to be great. We're going to put all of our money into you, into your education, into your future. And so they, they, their impression of Christianity is it's a peasant's religion and their life or their ambition or their goal is certainly to not be peasants. It's to be the strong. In fact, one of the students was the son of a general in the communist army. Now, again, if you know something about Chairman Mao's communist regime, you know that part of the communist um, teaching or sort of ethos was the self-made person, the one who doesn't depend on someone else, the one who can do this, the one who doesn't um, confess weakness. And so for these students, it was just sort of a funny thing to say, okay, well, thanks for the meals and all of that. But Christianity, of course, is a poor man's religion. Now, skip over to our world here in America, and it's a very different situation, where for many decades, a couple centuries even, Christianity has sort of been the religion of power. It's really been the religion of the empire, if you will, where pastors have sort of been the chaplain to the emperor, if you will. In fact, it's so much so, and, and for all the, the, you know, the, the lamenting and moaning of, oh, is Christianity being marginalized, we're still at the point where someone running for the executive office, someone who wants to be president, still feels the need to say that they go to church, even if they don't. <laughs> that there's still this important association with Christianity that you, you're supposed to be able to leverage, because Christianity for us is a religion of power. Christianity for us is the religion of the strong and the rich and the dominant. So which is it? Is Christianity a peasant's religion or is it the religion of power? Beyond just sort of an interesting question out there, sort of a big you know, social question, this question really has bearing on us as individuals because let's say you're coming into church and you feel weak. Let's say you're coming in and you've just been laid off, or you've just lost a job, or you've had a business deal go south. You've 
found yourself at this low point, and you may be wondering, is this Christian thing for the strong and the triumphant and the happy, or is it for me? Is it for me? Oftentimes, the songs that we sing in church only show one side of the coin sometimes. I would encourage all of you to attend the Sunday school classes starting next week with Dr. Todd because it's important to see how the Psalms let us be honest about our grief and let us bring the the voice of protest to God. But sometimes you get the impression from, from going to church services that Christianity belongs to the triumphant. And so we sing songs when we can sort of, you know, fist bump and, 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 and do, the, you know, do the fist pump, actually, you know, and we're like, yes, yes, you know, woo, Jesus is victorious and I am too. And deep down, we want to know, who is this really for? Or maybe you're on the other side and you're saying, well, actually, things are going kind of good right now. Like, I've been at the bottom of the barrel, but to be honest, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to brag about this, but things are, are going well. And, and maybe you, you have made money and you have done well and choices have, have sort of worked out for you and you want to know, is there room for me in the church? Is Christianity just for those who are sort of weak and poor? What if I'm doing well? Is there any room for me or do I sort of have to just hang out in other settings? Is there room for someone to say that, yeah, hey, things are working? Which is it? Is Christianity for the strong or is it for the weak? We're in a series called Church in the City. And it's a series through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And actually, technically, it's the second letter he wrote. You'll see later on that he alludes to an earlier letter. The first letter he wrote has been lost. And so what we call 1 Corinthians would be his second letter, but we don't have the first letter, so we call it the first letter to Corinthians. And the church in Corinth was this fledgling congregation. From the best sort of estimates, we think it was about maybe 100 people or so. Corinth as a city, some of you may recall my saying this a few weeks ago, but Corinth as a city, of course, we think of Corinth as this this, um, booming sort of epicenter of culture and learning and commerce, and it was that in in the Greek day, in the Greek empire, and then it got overrun and it it lay in ruins for about 100 years. And finally, Julius Caesar in about 46 BC said, hey, let's Let's reestablish the city. This would be in our interest if we reestablish the city. And so he invited a lot of his military veterans to come and settle the city. They began, it became the, the capital of this province on this, uh, not quite an island, but on this little strip of land called Achaia. They began to have games there, like the Olympic Games. So now all of a sudden you see, hey, there's a few parallels with Colorado Springs. We got Olympic training centers, we got veterans, we got military community. And it was also a place for entrepreneurs because people began to realize it was strategically located for trade routes. And so the people who were savvy about commerce began to make money for themselves. It was also a city of spiritual um, uh, syncretism, you could say, a mix of different ideas and superstitions. But it was a city as a whole that came to value status and came to value success and came to value strength. And so if you read the whole of chapter 4, you'll see that Paul is kind of defensive. He's kind of saying, hey, 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 who are you to judge me? I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but let the Lord do that. You know, you see him sort of bristling a bit. And you get the impression it's because the Corinthians valued people who were strong and who were successful. And here was Paul who didn't look like that. Here was Paul who was working um, to support himself instead of being like the, the great polished speakers who would have their, their lives underwritten by a patron. 
And so turn with me to chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, who says that you are better than anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? Can I just say that the concept of being given something, the concept of a gift, is immediately an offense to the proud? The idea of a gift is an offense to our pride. Paul's going right for the juggler. He's saying, what do you have that you didn't receive? This isn't something that you earn. And if you received it, then why are you bragging as if you didn't receive it? Why are you pretending that you earned this, that you made this something of yourself? And then he says with a little bit of sarcasm, actually a lot of sarcasm, you've been filled already. You've become rich already. If you're underlining in your Bibles, you could underline that word already. That's the emphasis for Paul. You rule like kings without us. The image here is of those who would sit kind of in the royal box seats, if you will, in the, in the, in the, in the arena. The ones who would kind of recline like kings, you know, with someone feeding them grapes and fanning them or whatever, you know. And later, he'll use an image of himself as being like the slaves in the arena. But he's saying, you guys got the box seats, how's that? And then he says... I wish you did rule so that we could be kings with you. I wish you did rule. Yeah, it'd be better if you really did rule. Because yeah, maybe, maybe there's some perks in this for me. The self-made person always bristles at the suggestion that they've received a gift. You remember this was kind of a hot topic around election season last year, you know, you built that. No, you didn't build that. You know, and you had the two parties kind of squabbling over, did you build it? Did you not build it? And, you know, and there's truth to both. But sometimes it's worth saying that if someone points out all the things that you've been given that you didn't do to deserve, the family that you were born into, the roads and schools and all the opportunities that you've had, if someone points that out to you, chant, and you get offended at that and say, no, I, did not, I don't have anything that I didn't work for, young man. If you bristle at that, that might be a sign of a little bit of pride. The self-made individual. But see, the Corinthians were not just proud of themselves for being self-made. They also had a very twisted version of spirituality. In some of the Hellenistic Oriental count, cults that were around the region, there was this practice where many would sort of come in to worship and they would be overwhelmed by a sense of power or status and they would sort of in this kind of, uh, you know, spiritual sort of, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, yeah, you're not helping me out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man. Anyway, where you have this, this euphoric, there you go, this experience that's euphoric and you, you, you leave the temple and you begin to feel like you're unstoppable, like you have all this power in the world. And that was associated with these Hellenistic Oriental cults. And so some of these Corinthian Christians, you get the, the sense that maybe they thought that's how the Holy Spirit worked. That to be a Christian meant to sort of have this feeling of, yeah, I'm the best. You know, you have a Richard Sherman moment or something, you know, where you're like, I'm the greatest. A few of you got it. <laughs> We're going to get them next week. All right. <laughs> And you have, this, you have this feeling of, I can do anything, I'm unstoppable. And so these Corinthians were thinking, maybe that's how this Jesus spirituality works. 
And that's why if you've read a couple verses before this, Paul's saying, don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond the gospel. Don't start adding to this thing and saying that you have a kind of strength that you don't already have. Listen, can I say something that maybe is a bit specific? There are a lot of preachers boasting about quote-unquote new revelations, And their so-called new revelations promise you immunity to suffering. And their so-called new revelations tell you that you can kind of work up with enough faith, you can work up enough euphoria that nothing will stop you. (laughs) One popular book is called Destined to Reign. And on the cover is this blinged out pastor from Singapore zips around the world on his private jet, promising that everybody else can do it too. And there's all kinds of insinuations of, I've got this new revelation. I really understand the gospel. And, and this, look, this is as old as the first century. And Paul says, don't go beyond what's written. Don't go beyond that. What, what are you doing? You're making stuff up. You're mixing things in. And really the key phrase, the reason I had you underline already is because there's this tension in the kingdom. You know what's interesting is if you fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says there's coming a day where you're going to reign. He actually says it. He says you're going to judge angels. In other words, there is a future glory, but it's not all now. And the point for Paul is not that these people wanted to reign and be strong. The point for Paul is that they were claiming to already be there. And they use these words like, he says, already you are filled. The word there is this idea of being satiated, of being totally satisfied and full. And so what Paul is saying is, guys, there is a kingdom promise, but there is this sense of attention where it's already but not yet. Already, but not yet. Some of it is now, already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. And actually, when you find yourself in the twilight of two ages, this present age, which is coming to a close, and this age to come that has begun with Jesus, you find yourself in the middle of two ages, and so sometimes what we think is living by one age actually looks like foolishness, to the present age. And Paul's saying, listen, we're living the way of Christ, which in the end will turn out to be a great victory and a great strength. But right now, it looks foolish. Right now, it looks foolish for a person who could be strong to come in and decide to be a a leather worker with Aquila and Priscilla. That looks kind of foolish. Right now, I could do this and I could do it, but, but, but I'm making all these sacrifices because I'm living to the, I belong to the next age. I belong to the age to come. Listen, in the next few chapters in Corinthians, we're going to talk about, Paul's going to talk about sexuality and morality and this new sort of way of thinking about the body and about sex and about morality. And Paul's rooting his logic in saying, listen, you don't belong to this present age. You belong to that age. And so there's going to be things that when you make decisions like that, they're going to look foolish to this present age. And Paul's saying, that's me. I'm not respected in this age. It's because I'm living like I belong to the next one. So verse 9, he continues his 
his um, letter, and he says, I suppose that God has shown that we are apostles at the end of the line. We are like prisoners sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle in the world. That word spectacle, that's the word that makes us think of the slaves in the arena while the Corinthian Christians are reclined on the couches in the box seats. And Paul says, we're like the spectacle in the world, both to angels and to humans. We are fools for Christ, and yet you are wise through Christ. You know better than this. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. Up to this very moment, we are hungry, thirsty, wearing rags, abused, and homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are insulted, we respond with a blessing. When we are harassed, we put up with it. And when our reputation is attacked, we are encouraging. We have become the scum of the earth. Literally, this idea of the, the thing on the bottom of the thing on the bottom of your shoe. You know? That's just the, the waste, the runoff from the street gunk that you just kind of do this before you enter someone's house. Paul says, yeah, that, that's us. The waste that runs off everything up to the present time. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says Jesus and his cross is a scandal is an affront, it's an offense. But if Jesus is a scandal, Paul's saying, we are scum. What did you expect for his followers? What did you expect for those who live the way Jesus lived? To follow Jesus is to be like him, and to be like Jesus is to be treated like him, and to be treated like Jesus is often going to mean being treated like scum. But Paul's saying, guys, I signed up for this. I didn't just sort of hope to avoid this and then it happened and so it's like, okay. Paul's saying, I I signed up for this. We work with our own hands. The story of Paul coming into Corinth, we we hear of it in the book of Acts. Paul comes in, he's probably walking down the Agora, the main pathway, and it's probably there that he meets Aquila and Priscilla and he finds out that they're Jews who fled Rome and they're leather workers, and he says, I'm a leather worker too. And they say, okay, well, we don't have much money, but you can join us in our shop. This is the guy, the great trained rabbi, had the best Jewish education, the man who had an encounter with Jesus. This is Paul who says, yeah, you know, back in the day, I also worked with leather. I think I could do that. And shares a workbench with Aquila and Priscilla, in all likelihood, perhaps slept under that workbench at night. Paul's saying, guys, I didn't sign up for this to get the good life. I chose this because this is the way of Christ. I chose this. I chose to make the sacrifices. And many of you who work for missions organizations, I was just talking to Eric Todd, who works with Every Home for Christ, just came back from meeting Christians up in the remote mountain areas in Mexico. You see things. You know these things. You know people who have made decisions like Paul. This has been going on for 2,000 years where Christians have said, you know what? I am signing up for the hardship. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm signing up for the hardship. I'm not in this to try to get everything that I can. Now, when we think about this for us, I think it's worth sort of asking what we tell ourselves about how life works. What do we tell ourselves about how life works? And maybe related to that is what do we tell ourselves about how life with God works? And I suspect that because of the 
world that we live in, there's at least two lies related to this that we hear or that we're bombarded with. And the first lie is this, I made myself what I am. I made myself what I am. It's because I read my Bible. That's why I'm living the blessed life. It's because I fast the first 21 days. That's why my business continues to grow. I made myself what I am. Or the second lie is God gives me what I want. It's just so awesome, guy. Everything I ask, God just gives it to me. It's just so amazing. So You should be a Christian too. I mean, it's just great. I mean, everything you want. What do you want? God will give it to you. At first glance, this, these seem like two very different lies because the first has to do with kind of a legalism. A, I made myself a self-effort, a works righteousness. And the second one has to do with more of this, this consumerism or maybe narcissism. And, and, and it's just, you know, one might be works righteousness, the other might be the prosperity gospel. And we think, well, these two things are nothing like each other. Actually, these two things both have the same God, self, self. These two things have the same God, self. Because the one says, you know, I, uh, I like Jesus and I appreciate the cross and, you know, I go to he- I'm glad about heaven and all of that. That's all cute. But in this world, I don't know why I'm talking like that. <laughs> it just sort of feels right, you know. <laughs> in this world... If you want something, you got to go get it. I make myself what I am. And then the other one is, you know, is I love Jesus, man. It's not just salvation. It's like candy. It's like everything. What do you, what do you want? God will give it to you. Woo! Both views, both lies have the same God. And the God is self. So what wakes us up from this Illusion. <laughs> what wakes us up from this self-God delusion, you know? Maybe that's the new book. Dawkins has the God delusion. We need the self-God delusion, you know? Because maybe that's the greater delusion, isn't it? Not that there's a God, but that you are God. You tell me which is the bigger delusion. I wonder. I wonder if there's a moment where all of a sudden... We run up against something larger than ourselves, something we can't control, something we can't fix, something we can't change, and then all of a sudden we say, hey, 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 maybe my strength is not as strong as I I thought it was. There comes a moment where your strength doesn't seem strong enough and your wisdom doesn't seem wise enough and your riches don't seem rich enough and your power doesn't seem powerful enough. You know those moments where you realize that you can't fix a son or a daughter or a spouse. Those moments where you realize there is no cure for that disease. Those moments when you realize that you cannot change that addiction or that behavior. Those moments where all of a sudden you come to the edges of your own strength and riches and wisdom. And you say, uh, what? Because it's all good and fine when we're rolling and we're winning. <laughs> and then there's this, whoa, whoa, there's something bigger than me. And it's usually a crisis 
Or maybe it's something as basic as guilt. And no amount of self-talk can remove that guilt. No amount of telling yourself, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, people like me. (laughs) No amount of any of that can shake this gnawing inside of saying, how do I remove this? How do I get rid of this? Run up against the limits of your strength and your wisdom and your riches. Those Chinese students, there was probably a hundred of them that came through that town in the course of a two-year period, and about 30 or 40 of them began having meals with families in our church. And from meals came conversations, and from conversations came going to church. And over the span of a few years, all 30 or 40 of those students came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. All of them. Including the son of the general in the communist army. What was it? Could it be the power of the gospel lived out? Could it be the power of the gospel lived out? Saying, here's love in the flesh. Here's warmth. Here's hospitality. Here's a kindness. I was home one summer, home from college one summer, and got to be there when about 20 or so of them were getting water baptized. I tell you, what an experience that was. To see someone who thought, their whole life thought, you have to have it all within you. Don't be weak, be strong. This world has no time for the weak. Their whole life grew up hearing that. And all of a sudden found a place where there was a love that melted them. There was a love that softened them. All of a sudden found out, I, I, I can be weak. Paul goes on in his letter to the Corinthians and he says in verse 14, he says, look, I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed, but to warn you since you are my loved children. He says, you may have 10,000 mentors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. I gave birth to you in Christ Jesus through the gospel, so I encourage you to follow my example. Paul is making his appeal not just by a force of logic and not certainly not by guilting them or shaming them. He makes his appeal through this love and this personal relationship, and he says, you guys, I know you. I gave up my life to be with you for a year and a half. I didn't do this just because I wanted to hit the circuit. I did this because I cared. And can't you see that this is the gospel lived out? See, as great as Paul's love is for them, we know that, of course, it's just a picture of God's own great love for us. It's just a picture of what the gospel tells us about God and his great love for us. The God who came near while we were still sinners. The God who came near while we insisted on keeping God at arm's length. 
the God who came looking, the God who gave his life, the God who came announcing his love for you, not because you're strong enough, smart enough, good enough, but because he's chosen to set his love on you. Now that's remarkable. That's remarkable. Jesus in the flesh comes living and dying and rising to announce to us that there is a love that has been bestowed on you. That isn't because you've earned it. That isn't because you've done anything about it. And isn't the truth that we long for that kind of love? Isn't it that deep down inside we want to know if it's safe to really say what we feel and what we think and to share what we are and what we've done? See, that first lie of saying that you made yourself what you are is prone to a kind of neurotic shame. A shame that repeatedly comes every time you hit your limit. Some of you know this. Every time you fail or you disappoint someone, an inordinate amount of shame comes washing over you. It says, you're no good, you're nothing. You're like, oh. Because you've hooked your life to the belief that you make yourself what you are. And I'm telling you, if you make that the defining principle of your life and you say, yes, everybody makes themselves who they are, then every time you fail or you fall, and you will, buckets of shame will come washing over you. And you'll say, I guess I'm not her. I guess I'm not him. Because you've made your creed the lie that says you make yourself what you are. And so shame washes over. But if you make your creed the other lie that says, better get all you can out of God, that's what the gospel is, is it's, is it's candy and stuff, so better get it all. Then the first sign of hardship, the first situation that you feel at your wit's end about, you will be riddled with fear. And you'll say, well, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God is not near. Maybe, God, maybe, maybe I'm all alone. Maybe, maybe I... So if we attach ourselves to the first lie that says you make yourself what you are, you're setting yourself up for a life of shame. But if you attach your life to the second lie that says, well, God's just here to give you everything you want, so go ahead and get it all, then when all of a sudden it doesn't seem to quote unquote work, when you do obey God and you do follow God and all of a sudden still something happens, immediately there's fear that shoots right through the gut that says, maybe you're abandoned. Maybe God doesn't care. And Paul says, out of love for you as a father in your faith, I want to tell you, don't hook your life on to these two lies. Instead, cling to Christ. In Christ, in the gospel, what you realize is when you are weak, then he is strong. When you say, I have nothing, then you hear afresh his words that says, I am everything. You see, 
What we've been raised to believe is that when you confess your weakness, that's when you'll begin to experience less love, declining love. But the gospel says to us, the moment you confess your weakness, that's when you find the strength of God's love. That's when you find the strength of God's love. When you confess your weakness, that's when you find the strength of God's love. You can plumb the depths of it. You can, you can climb the heights of it, test it, and say, God, I confess, I am weak. I am frail. I don't have it together. I've made all these sacrifices, and it doesn't seem like my kids are following you. I've made all these decisions, and it doesn't seem like life is working. I've made all of these right choices. I fast, and I pray, and I can't seem to get this off the ground. In those moments, what you'll find is not shame washing over you and not fear shooting you through the gut, but the love of God overwhelming you. When you confess your weakness to God, in that moment, you find the strength of his love. In that moment, you find the strength of his love. See, Paul later from a prison cell would write, I can endure all things through Christ who gives me strength. I have learned the secret of being content, whether I am abased or whether I abound. In other words, whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, whether I'm strong or whether I'm weak. See, the question of is Christianity for the strong or for the weak, the answer is yes. It's for everyone. But you've just got to realize that it is Christ that sustains you, not your strength and not your weakness not your riches, and not your poverty. It is Christ who defines you. See, we quote Philippians 4.13 all funny sometimes. We quote it before like football games. I can do all things through Christ. No, no, listen. Read Philippians 4. Read it all the way through. We might have been better off before the Bible had verse markings. (laughs) So we could read the whole thing. Because what Paul is saying is exactly the response. That it's toward the end of his life. And maybe he's thinking back about his dear friends in Corinth. And he's saying, guys... I've had it all. I've had nothing. I've been king. I've I've been like a king, and I've been like a pauper. I've been strong. I've been weak. But I can endure all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the secret. Don't attach to these lies that say you, you make yourself what you are, or you can use God to get what you want. No, 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 you're missing it. The beauty of the gospel is that you have been loved with a love that you've never earned never deserved, a love that has been bestowed on you, a love that will carry you through the strongest hours and a love that will carry you through the weakest moments. A love that will stand by you. So in a sense, the gospel is for the weak and the broken in the sense that our gospel reading was today. Jesus responds and he says, oh, it's only the sick who need a doctor, not the well. Wink, wink. You're all sick. (laughs) You just don't know it. (laughs) And there is a sense that all of us have to humble ourselves over and over again. Question for us this morning is, will you humble yourself to recognize your need for this gift? Will you humble yourself to receive this gift over and over again, again and again and again, like that old hymn, I need thee every hour, every hour. That's not enough, you know, I can't just say, pretend like, it's why the early Christians had divine hours. They would set hours of the day to pray. 
6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 noon, you know, on, all throughout the day. Why? Because it was their way of saying, I still need you now. I still need you now. It's not just Sunday morning, I got my, you know, my shot for the week, I'm good to go. No, every day, every hour. Theologian N.T. Wright, when he was a bishop in the Church of England, was asked, why is it that the church baptizes an individual once, but we serve communion regularly, every week, sometimes more, you know, make it available even during the week. And he said, because you only need to be born once, baptism, but you got to eat every day. Give us this day our daily bread. And so we come to the table every week, every Sunday, as a way of saying once again, my hands are empty. Okay, thank you that church is a place where I don't have to pretend like the triumphant all the time. Thank you that church is a place that I can say, I am a spectacle to the world and to angels even. And to, I mean, people look at me, they laugh. They think you're a Christian. <laughs> wow. I don't have this figured out. It's not, it's clicking some days. We come and we say, God, I've got nothing. Confession is the act of emptying our hands and saying, I've got nothing. And communion is the moment where Jesus fills our hands with his body and his blood. Confession, we empty our hands. Communion, he says, take, eat, take, drink. I am enough for you.